Hi, everyone. This is your host, Fatma, and you're listening to Bite Size Books Podcast. Hi, this is Nisha. Welcome to our second episode. Today, we'll be discussing Positive Discipline by Jane Nelson, Christina Bill, and Joy Marchese. As a mom of two, effective discipline has been something that I have sought after for the last six years. Now, discipline is such a touchy subject because, you know, discipline varies by culture. And I think for myself, um, as most parents, constructive discipline is something that has always been a very vague term tossed around in parenting culture. So Fatma, uh, can you explain a little bit about why you chose this book? Sure. So for those who don't know, I have two children myself as well. And one is almost a four-year-old and the other is six. So when my first was born, I remember being really overwhelmed by the amount of information that was out there on parenting. So there were like a lot of conflicting ideas, like should you sleep train, don't sleep train, nurse to sleep, don't nurse to sleep, baby led wean, don't baby led wean, wear your baby, don't wear your baby. So it just keeps going on and on. Everything had a flip side and a lot of opinions behind it. What I did know was that when it came to addressing my child's behavior and parenting, I wanted to try something different than what I had seen around me. So something about the most common parenting methods like punishment and reward. So like timeouts, spanking, bribes, that kind of cycle or being too permissive. So giving into everything they want or doing everything for your child felt a little bit off to me. So a friend of mine forwarded me a link to Janet Lansbury's blog called Elevating Child Care. Janet Lansbury is a parent educator on the Rye philosophy, which is resources for infant educators. And the first article I read on her blog was called Tantrums and Meltdowns, My Secret for Staying Calm When My Kids Aren't. And she said that tantrums are a way to realize that your child is asking for help, that uh, you can help validate their feelings and you can set firm boundaries early on in the tantrum and you can let their feelings run their course. So this is like screaming, crying, yelling, all the things that, you know, up until that point I had heard that should be nipped in the bud. And I, I really feel like our society in general has a low tolerance for And um, I went from article to article and I realized how much this made sense to me because this was a way to create an amazing relationship and bond with your child with long-term success through respect, connection, kindness, and firm boundaries. So through Janet, I also discovered the book, Positive Discipline, that we're discussing today. So, you know, I really like that uh, you mentioned this because I know as a mom, an an early mom, I I really struggled between, um, you know, kind of the social pressure of, especially if I'd be at the mall, for example, and with my eldest, you know, when he'd be hungry, obviously he'd completely lose it. And I used to be really embarrassed that should I, you know, let him cry or should I try to show some discipline? I know before I became a mom, my tolerance level, you know, on an airplane, for example, was, was close to zero. I would be really frustrated when I'd, you know, hear crying on an airplane, I would automatically, you know, put it on the parent that they weren't, you know, in more control. Uh, I realized how far from, you know, reality that was now that I, I myself became a parent. And uh, so what exactly is the premise of this book? Because I, I feel like um, I'm, I'm ho- hoping that this topic spans, you know, cultural differences and kind of encapsulates, uh, you know, application over culture. Yeah, um, absolutely. So Positive Discipline is first and foremost a book about changing ourselves as parents before trying to change our children and their behavior. So this particular edition that I read, so the same authors have different books on positive discipline that are aimed at teenagers, at toddlers, at preschoolers. This is more for parents who are living in the 21st century who are trying to juggle and maintain competing demands. So there's parenting, there's work, there's school, there's extracurricular activities. And 
I'd say up until the pandemic, before lockdowns became the norm, a lot of our lives were really overscheduled. So we had like work, we had school, we had after school activities. And there were so many things crammed into our short schedules that it just made life overwhelming and really busy. And even with a lot of jobs having switched to work from home, now with, you know, uh, a lot of us being in, in lockdowns and, and working from home, a lot of parents are finding that they are working longer hours and that line between like home, school, work, and that's all being blurred further. So the amazing thing about this book is that the principles and the tools that are provided can be used whether you're working from home or you're working outside of the house, whether your kids are doing online school, whether you're homeschooling them or whether they're going to school in person. And each circumstance comes with its own set of unique challenges. So the authors, what I found really unique was that the authors advocate for compartmentalizing, for not compartmentalizing ourselves as like our personal self and our professional self, because what they mentioned is something called work-life integration. And I like that they didn't use work-life balance. It's more like where you integrate your, your work and your life together, which makes it so much more healthier because then you, you can use your parenting skills at work and aid in your professional work and vice versa. So like learning like resiliency, cooperation, collaboration, those are all things that we do in our, uh, in our daily lives at work and at home with our kids. So what the book offers is positive discipline tools that are backed by the latest research in neuroscience about you know, how our children's brains develop. And this is to help motivate us and our children to make wiser choices and have a healthier relationship with one another as a family unit with proven long-term benefits. Yeah, I really like how you mentioned um, it's more of a self-correction before you looking at, you know, even your own child. Because I think, you know, as uh, the, the, over the last little while, I've been, you know, digging deeper into like, you know, self-improvement books. And I think the overwhelming theme has always been that uh, the change that we wish to see in our lives needs to come from ourselves. And I think, you know, I, I, I'll be the first to say, like, I have found many times in my li own life that a lot of times when I've you know been in difficulty or struggled, I have always looked at who I can shift that blame to, who around me um, is the cause of it. Even like, for example, if I'm overwhelmed at home or whatnot, like, you know, it's the kid's fault and stuff. But I definitely think as, as you're saying that it's uh, it, it's nice to be able to find some um, effective, you know, learning techniques that help us kind of change ourselves, even if it's in relation to our kids. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to going getting into this. So I'll start off with the first thought that popped in my mind when you mentioned this was uh, your first book. And uh, so can you help reconcile between the opposing terminology she's, they've used for their title, positive discipline? Because again, in my own perception, uh, positive obviously is positive and discipline tends to, um, you know, have a connotation of this uh, strict, very, you know, forceful, you know, so, like it, it's not, it doesn't come across as positive. So can you reconcile between these two opposing terms? So I really, really love this question uh, because I think you're absolutely 100% correct that we often tend to think about discipline as something really negative. So discipline could be something like spanking or threatening your child or ye yelling at them to get them to do what we want them to do. But the word discipline could actually not be further from the truth. So there's Dr. Dan Siegel. He's a psychiatrist who has written a lot of popular uh, parenting books. And one of them is The Whole Brain Child. And he has said, quote, too often we forget that discipline really means to teach, not to punish. A disciple is a student, not a recipient of behavioral consequences, unquote. 
So that's what the authors of positive discipline are trying to drive home, that positive discipline is a range of tools in our parenting toolkit, and it's based on principles that we need to understand and take to heart. Otherwise, it almost becomes like a script that you know we may end up regurgitating to our kids without truly living these principles. And the change has to start with us. Like I already mentioned earlier, um, we need to internalize the life skills we want to teach our kids, like problem solving, cooperation, resilience, courage, honesty. And this all comes through modeling. Like this book emphasizes modeling in almost every chapter. And I'm gonna expand on this a little bit further, but uh, modeling is essential. And we're also rejecting the idea of falling into the cycle of, you know, punishment and rewards or being permissive with our children, because even though these tactics, they may work in the short term, they can have really like negative long term consequences in terms of the relationship that we want to create with our children. And it can further cause our children to misbehave because they have a mistaken belief about how you know, their misbehavior gets them what they are seeking. And what are children seeking or what are humans seeking after all? That is belonging and significance. So when children see that their misbehavior gets their parents' attention, even though it may be negative attention, it may be in the form of yelling or hitting, or it may be just giving in, then the child is more likely to do that. So we are going to discuss more about like the tools and, and tips the authors provide on how we can we can really bring positive discipline into our lives, not only to help, you know, create a better relationship between us and our kids, but also uh, help us gain skills that we may not have had before. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think with uh, I, I didn't even think about the uh, root um, link between disciple and discipline. And uh, as you're mentioning as well with uh, just general attention, whether it's positive or negative, I, I remember even with my, again, my eldest, uh, when my daughter was born, you know, he has always been a very good kid and he um, started acting out in ways he never did before. And I think that as you're mentioning, it's just, you know, attention for the sake of attention that I at the time would had mislabeled as, you know, bad behavior. And I was also very confused and reactive to it. So I'm really, really happy that, you know, we're sharing this for all of the new parents and parents of younger children, because I think it's really easy to get lost in the early phases of parenting on, you know, the survival of it, because, you know, we're all in survival mode trying to make it through the day. And as human beings, you know, we have thresholds with our lack of sleep and lack of food and just lack of general self-care. So can you go into a bit more detail about exactly what positive discipline is? Just want to get um, a better understanding of uh, what the what the authors intended. Yeah, sure. So Positive discipline is basically an encouragement model. So Jane Nelson, who is one of the main authors of the book, she was a student of Adlerian psychology. And Dr. Adler was a Viennese, Viennese doctor in the 1800s. So Adler did a lot of research with children. And essentially what he found was that a misbehaving child is a discouraged child. So positive discipline uh, provides tools that are based on the behavior of a child. So we can think of a child's behavior like an ice, iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is what we see. So if they are having a hard time or they're having a tantrum, all we see is the, min uh, the physical manifestation of that. Whereas what we do not see is what is underneath the surface or the rest of the iceberg. And that is the belief behind the child's behavior. So what does the child believe that their behavior will do and what it will help and and that need for belonging and significance. So our role as 
parents and educators is to help our children find that sense of belonging and significance. And this is through, you know, through kindness, through respect, through through firm boundaries. But before I go further, I kind of want to, I think it'll be worthwhile talking a little bit more about, you know, the different styles of parenting that are definitely more popular in our current society. And I think that parents tend to oscillate a bit more between. And maybe I'll, I'll ask you, so when I say the word like authoritarian parenting, what do you, what comes to your mind? Um, so authoritarian is definitely doesn't have a positive, you know, connotation to me. Um, it's more of a dictatorship, so to speak. It, again, this is my perception. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's a one way relationship where, the, you know, the person who's in charge sets the boundaries. Um, there's a very little, there's actually no room uh, for negotiation um, in this type of relationship. Um, and so definitely, again, off just my general exposure to the term, that's kind of where I'd go towards. So I think you hit the nail on the head. Authoritarian parenting or this style of parenting is usually where parents try to use control as a basis for their parenting. So this is where you, like you said, impose rules, like one person is imposing the rules and threats and punishments and reward to get the children to do what they want. Um, and this also in includes punitive punishment, like, you know, spanking, yelling, threatening, and so on. So parents might fall into the trap of parenting uh, in the authoritarian style because they might think that the only other way is permissive parenting. And permissive parenting would mean like giving into your child's every demand. And this would lead to chaos in the household, right? This would mean the parent losing their position as the parent in the household and basically losing control. A lot of it is based on like, say you ask your child to do something and they say, why should I do that? Why should I do that? And you say, because I said so, or do this and don't do that. And we see that uh, punishment is meant to make the child pay for their actions versus discipline, which is designed to teach children to learn from their mistakes in a supportive environment. What we're doing is we're expecting our children to control their behavior when we can't control our own. So when we're saying, do this, don't do that, yelling at them. And what does the child see? Again, we come back to modeling. They see that it's okay to yell when you get frustrated. It's okay to, you know, slam things. It's okay to hit when you get angry. You know. A way to justify this kind of parenting could be, A, my parents used this with me and I turned out totally fine. And B, it works, like this kind of parenting works. So the answer to B, I would say, is that it might work more in the short term where children are controlling their behavior. It buys us time with, you know, temporary compliance and obedience. But then we ask the question, what about our child's self-worth? What about their self-esteem and that sense of belonging and significance that they are trying to get? And that I think really gets shattered in the process because it often leads to guilt from us, like the parent, after we've yelled at them or after we've, you know, lost or we flipped our lid, um, we get, we feel like a, a deep sense of guilt and shame that, you know, we shouldn't have done that. And the child feels like they're unworthy. And uh, the tools in this book, again, are there to help us break out of this, you know, punishment reward cycle and help our children develop a positive belief system and not just strategies for coping where they turn out fine. And I don't think any one of us just wants our children to turn out fine because we want our children to grow into adults who have the life skills that will, you know, let them have healthy relationships with others and also be able to deal with situations that come in their life in a healthy way. No, that's a, that's a really, really great point. Um, and it actually, like, as you were talking about this, well, it reminded me of um, my own personal example as well. Uh, where, you know, I, patience is not something that I am very strong with. And so 
in the again early years when uh, my eldest and even my daughter now my youngest um when they got old enough to kind of um not blatantly lie but to kind of you know reword the truth a little bit to fit their needs i i used to be very you know upset by it and you know if let's say you know something like spilled and they both were kind of shifting between the, the each other you know who did it i would be very quick to a getting upset about you know what happened b getting mad that the person who did it it's not owning up to it and uh i'm i'm thankful and then my husband you know would come, kind of come around and be like you know what you can't be getting mad at them for trying their best to be honest about things because in their perception there's so many events that have happened and what they're seeing it versus what the actual case is like as an adult when you ask who spilled the milk when two adults are a part of something they'll the adults know to just say the last person who would have knocked it over they don't you know go through the entire process of what led up to it but for children obviously being afraid of getting in trouble you know they're they're shifting between various circumstances and anyways um i just realized that you know there'd be a lot of moments when i would actually reprimand the kids for being honest about something that was um you know difficult for me to deal with because at the end of the day I would I would be upset that the milk would be spilled or whatever would have happened because I'd have to take care of it and so he kind of shifted me over and and explained to me that you know now that they're older if something like that happens a it's first cleaned up by the person who's caused the mistake which is in itself a punishment but also a way of kind of um teaching them to self correct and that okay if you've made the mistake that's not what's the, like the issue at hand is to correct the mistake and so the responsibility is taken but at the same time you know admiring them and and giving them a pat on the back for being honest about it because i think um i think the authoritarian style is very much about you know you do something wrong there's no context for you know behavior it's just more so like a one way track of you know you're right or you're wrong yeah definitely and i think we've all been there as parents um and it's 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 true that like like you know a thing that's mentioned in this book is that you know this permissive parenting and authoritarian parenting is something that parents kind of oscillate through and 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 because we've all sort of been there we we understand how like in the case of you know the the children spilling the milk like addressing the behavior where the person who spilled the milk they clean it up and and that teaches a life lesson as well that you know that's a natural consequence you spill the milk you have to clean it up and um also just you know approaching them by you know like you're saying that you you didn't if it happened again you didn't get angry because you realize that at least they are trying their best to be honest in the situation mm-hmm. so i feel like you know the tools that are provided here are are so important to just kind of like ground yourself as a parent and realize that you know like if a, if a mistake has happened it's the best way to learn from a mistake is by by learning through it right like by self correcting yeah. self correcting and realize it's a learning opportunity so that's mm-hmm. what mistakes are they are learning opportunities versus ways for parents to just you know tell a child that you know you did something wrong and shame them for sure and so so how would you again now the flip side like I, i've always been afraid of sliding into a permissive and mm-hmm. you know being a parent that's walked all over and yeah. being somebody who the kids don't take seriously because yeah. oh, it's just it, you know it's just mama like you know it's i don't want i've all, i've never wanted to kind of also fall into that category so that happy middle ground so can you just kind of explain what you know permissive parenting is just to be able to figure out that happy middle ground yeah sure so permissive parenting i would say is like the extreme opposite of authoritarian parenting so instead of control this is a very like laissez faire approach where our children are essentially robbed of the opportunity to develop resilience and problem solving skills and i feel like 
you know, permissive parenting generally stems from guilt. So a parent might feel a lot of guilt for, you know, not being there for their child if they're working long hours. Or sometimes it can just be that after a really long day, you know, you're tired and your child might be whining or screaming for something and you're trying to make dinner and, you know, your kids are tugging at your legs and you just give in, right? Um, the example could be around like screen time, right? Like in our home, for example, we made it a rule that once the kid during weekdays, once the kids are home from school, um, you know, between the time they're home until bedtime, no screens, and then they can they can watch things on the weekend. Um, and there have been days where it's so like tempting to just give in because it's like you can just, you know, put them in front of the screen or whatever. But we've we've figured out ways, um, I'll, I'll mention some later that, you know, that we can we can work through it with the child, like like by validating their feelings or or by, you know, giving them that time. So yes, while you're making dinner, you can take out a few minutes just to get down to the level and ask them what they actually need. Um, and so essentially what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of reasons that we can become permissive parents, right? Um, and that's why we tend, like, we may tend to oscillate between the two. We might be too authoritarian sometimes. We might be too permissive sometimes. It's not, you know, black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing I really want to just mention, and I will keep mentioning throughout this, is that it's it's okay to make mistakes. And mistakes are learning opportunities. And we and our children are not perfect. So when we use some of these positive discipline tools that are mentioned here, like we're going to keep improving, we're going to keep improving our behavior. And hopefully our children, when they see us, you know, modeling good behavior, um, they understand that, you know, this is perseverance. That's a life skill that they're learning. So to go back to permissive parenting, it can come in three forms. Um, the first is rewards. So the overuse of, re- of rewards to encourage children to comply to our behavior. So think of like giving stickers to a child or toy after every time a child does something positive. And this this diminishes that intrinsic motivation. So there's an example in the book of a teacher who she had like a chore chart in her classroom with kid, where kids could come and like whenever it was their, their turn, they would clean up, tidy up, and she would give a sticker to the child. So there was one girl in particular in the class who loved the idea of stickers. And, you know, she would just put away the arts and crafts and tidy up everything and clean the table. And she was amazing at this. So then one day there was the the parent teachers conference and the teach, the kids were there. So what the girl started to do was she put out all the cups, she put out all the plates, she made everything look beautiful, and the teacher was just watching her and on saying like, "Oh, I'm so like proud of her that, you know, she's, you know, taken this to heart." And then the girl walks over to her teacher, sticks out her hand and says, "Can I have a sticker?" And in that moment, it, you know, it clicked to that teacher that this was what she was looking for, that girl was looking for was external reward, not there was no intrinsic motivation. And research also shows that, you know, rewards do not work as motivators for children, and it actually impairs performance. So there was a study that was done where children who were expecting a reward made more mistakes in their task than kids who were simply used to being told that, you know, here are the result of your efforts. That's the first. Then the second is praise. So praise basically encourages children to depend on the opinion of others rather than appreciate their own self-worth. Praise focuses more on achievement while we can see, you know, encouragement uh, is more of an internal motivation and an internal effort. So this is not to say that, you know, never use praise with your kids. It's like a dessert. So like it's something that, you know, like dessert, if you eat a little bit, it's very satisfying. But if you eat a lot of it, it can be really unhealthy. 
If your child is, you know, getting better in daily tasks, like, you know, putting on their shoes by themselves, brushing their teeth by themselves, you can notice this and encourage their behavior by, you know, saying things like you did it all by yourself and I can see how hard you worked. And from time to time, you could use praise as well, where you could be like, you know, I see how hard you work and I'm really proud of you. Um, but again, it's something that should be used sparsely. And the last thing is pampering. So this is basically overprotection and rescuing where parents think that their children will think when their parents are rescuing, rescuing them and or protecting them that, you know, thanks for loving me so much, mom and dad. You know, thanks for never letting me suffer. I'm going, I'm going to be forever grateful for what you've done to me and done for me, and I'll always be on my best behavior. Uh, but on the contrary, we see that our children may demand more from us, and this confuses us into thinking like, okay, how ungrateful could my kid be, right? The reality is that we're robbing our kids of problem solving and survival skills. So learning disappointment, for example, is something that's, important when we say we go to a store and our child really wants to buy a toy at the grocery store and we say no because and we say it with kindness and firmness because we there could be a a, a plethora of reasons why we say no like we're on a budget or or whatever but the way you could approach this with kindness and firmness is that like validate their feelings so i know you really wanted the toy and you can't have it today. And we don't say, but you can't have it today. Because I, I feel like when you add, but it's almost like saying, you know, I know how you feel, you're really upset, but it's almost like you're negating the first half of that validation that you did. Right? So, and there will be tears. And if that happens, it's totally okay to pick up your child in that moment and take them, to, take them to the car and let them release their feelings in the safety and the confines of the car. And if you're with your other child, if you have other kids or you have your grocery cart full, you could always go to another part of the store where there's less people. So this happened with me when my son was a little bit younger. Every time he goes to the grocery store, he always wants to get a Hot Wheel car. And it was initially it would always be like, OK, let's just give in because he is going to start whining. And then whining is going to turn into a tantrum. It's going to be crying. I have my grocery cart. I need to get home. So what I did last time or like last time this happened was that I said, you know, I know you really want the Hot Wheel and we're not getting it today. And of course he had like, you know, tears in his eyes. And I, I kind of got down to his level. I put my hand on his shoulder. Like I gave him eye contact and I said, you know, I, I, I understand this is really hard for you. Um, you know, maybe there's a way we can, we can think of getting the Hot Wheel some other time, or maybe there's a way that you can save up your allowance because we also give allowance. So, you know, essentially inculcating habits where they realize that mom and dad will not always get you what you want. Um, for whatever reason. And that's basically teaching them a lesson in resilience and in, in you know, uh, understanding that this is something that um, your parents will not always give in. Uh, and so, you know, I've talked a lot about authoritarian and permissive parenting. And I've kind of weaved in the positive discipline principles and tools into it. But now I kind of want to go more into depth, like talking about positive discipline and the five criteria. But Maybe I'll ask you first if you have any any thoughts about, you know, what I've just talked about. Um, no, definitely. Everything you mentioned, I can relate to every single, uh, especially with the permissive parenting. As much as I did not think I was a permissive parent, every single thing you've mentioned, I can think of a, a recent example um, that has happened. So I think uh, where I'm kind of struggling a little bit now is at this point, my kids are now four and almost seven. And so, you know, trying to figure out how to unlearn and unteach some of the the um, I don't want to say mistakes because it was what I thought was correct at the time. And 
Um, I think, you know, as parents, we, we spend a lot of our time, you know, looking down upon ourselves for a lot of instances with regret. But I think, you know, we all try our best um, in the moment that we're at. And now, given that, you know, I have a lot more independence and um, freedom from them because they are older, I think uh, I'm just trying to figure out how to, you know, all of, within a lot of these situations, kind of how to unteach slash unlearn some of these behaviors. Because I think, you know, you also as as a person, as a human being, you train yourself to um, habituate to how to handle a certain circumstance. And I think being, you know, self-conscious in that moment when emotions are running high, a grocery store is a perfect example. Uh, for me, it's my daughter. And anytime she sees anything girly, um, flowers, anything, she's always wanted to take some. And I think, you know, for myself, there's this somewhat of a little bit of a bias at times where she's, you know, the youngest and she's like a little girl and it's so cute that she wants a flower. And, you know, I've given in quite a few times and I've noticed recently that she's kind of come into the grocery store with the expectation that she's going to walk out with something. My son doesn't have that uh, because I never started that habit with him, and but she does. And so if he notices something that he wants, you know, he, he'll either ask, and if I say no, he's completely fine with it. But in her case, when it's a no, it's, you know, complete, you know, the same waterworks and why this time, you know, but last time you did it, and I don't have an answer. I, I, I've given in. That's what my response is. So mm. I think uh, the unlearning portion of it is going to be a little bit of, uh, a learning experience. Did she mention that at all, like unlearning or unteaching? Yeah. So you're just in luck because I was going to talk about the the five criteria for positive discipline, and these are basically the principles that, when you read through them and you you internalize them, that's when you realize that all of your tools and strategies you use after mm -hmm. will be like positive discipline tools that will help you unlearn those behaviors. Okay. Right. And the best thing to do is just keep practicing. And like you mentioned, I just want to kind of go back to that point about, you know, like may have made a mistake in the past. Again, anything we see as a mistake is a learning opportunity, right? For sure. So when, um, so when we talk about the five criteria for positive discipline, the first one is that, you know, is it respectful? So is it kind and firm at the same time? So is this sort of discipline, is it kind and firm? And I think people tend to think that, you know, no punishment is equal to being permissive, right? Uh, and this is definitely not the case because we can be firm in our boundaries, but we can do it with kind kindness. And I really, really love the phrase that they mentioned in the book. And I always use it as a mantra myself when like I'm in the moment with my kids and like it's getting too much. And that phrase is connection before correction. And what do we mean by that? So connection means connecting with your child before you, you know, put out a something to discipline them with. So for example, always validate your child's feelings before you set the boundary. So that is the connection part. So like, I know you really wanted the latest cell phone or that toy, or, you know, basically fill in the item that your, uh, uh, your item of choice that your child wants. And, you know, I'm sure you can save enough to purchase this item soon. Right. So that validating part is like, I know you really wanted, I know you're disappointed that you didn't get it, but I'm sure that you can save enough to be able to get it. This is just a, a small example. Or um, in my case, when the kids come home and, you know, I'm still working, they come home from school, they really want me to just, you know, get off my laptop and come play with them. And I say that, you know, I would really love to spend time with you. I can't do that right now, but I'm really looking forward to spending time with you after I've closed my laptop at five o'clock and I've logged off. Like I, I'm very specific with them. And 
nine out of 10 times that helps because, you know, they're, they, they understood that, okay, this is mom's time. She's setting a boundary and then they'll go downstairs and they'll get into play until I'm, I'm, I come downstairs. And I think this also helps avoid a lot of power struggles as well, because uh, when we are kind and we are firm, we're sticking firmly to our decision. And not only are we respecting our child, but we're respecting ourselves ourselves by, you know, creating that boundary. So I think it just makes us like happier parents when, I mean, of course, in that moment, maybe your child will, you know, have a backlash to what we've said. But overall, I think this is what we're talking about, right? Unlearning and and parenting for the long term. Mm -hmm. These are not short term things that will just work in one go. It's long term. And you can use it over your lifetime with your children. So the second criteria for respectful parenting or for positive discipline is, does it help children feel belonging, connection, and significance, which is a sense of contribution? So children, obviously, they need to know that they're able to grow and learn in a, you know, respective and positive space. So through positive discipline tools, we are equipping our children, you know, with life skills to succeed in a world that is increasingly growing more challenging and more difficult. So the key is to offer, you know, our support and give them room to brainstorm their solutions. And um, so this is where something like family meetings comes in. And in the book, they mention this as being something very integral to the family uh, unit. And I, I'm also really excited to kind of implement this into my own, my own household. So they say that having weekly meetings is essential to, you know, evaluate solutions that you and your children come up with to, you know, resolve behavioral issues. So this could be something like, you know, sibling conflict. If, if there's two siblings who are, you know, they're always fighting a lot, put that on the family uh, meeting agenda and figure out like what steps the kids can take to resolve their problems. And it could be like fighting over like toys or fighting over um, like who gets to play the video game or whatever. And then this kind of helps you see what worked and what didn't. And then you can go back to the drawing board and figure out more, uh, brainstorm more solutions. Um, and then they also talk about how, you know, it's important to schedule everything into your calendar. And, and this way, you know, children can get a sense of what's happening for the month because children thrive on routine, as we know. And they also kind of know what to expect from their daily, weekly and monthly rhythm. Uh, and there's also a few more elements to the family meeting that I'm not really getting into because for the sake of time. But if you get a chance to pick up this book, it's definitely worth reading into more. And I think it's a also, it seems like a really great way to build in family one-on-one -on -one quality time where children feel like they're being heard and their solutions are being taken into consideration. And then a second thing that they mentioned that was really important, I felt, was this emphasis on spending quality time with each one of your children individually, and they call it special time. So this is outside of like morning routine, bedtime routine, and dinner time and lunchtime, where you like during these things, you're also present with your child without distractions. But with special time, it's one-on-one -on -one time with your with one child, and it gives them an opportunity to for you to get to know your child better and for them to open up more to you. So uh, you know you could. Um, schedule some time to go out with them. So maybe your husband can watch one child while you take one child out for like lunch or you go out for a walk and then you can switch it up and, and you know, do the same thing with uh, your other child. And this also definitely helps more with sibling cohesion as well. So there's like less jealousy between kids because they've got that, you know, opportunity to spend time with their mom or their dad one-on-one. -on -one. 
and you know, this actually reminds me as well. Um, the sweet like this past weekend, um, uh, my Ari, my husband, um, he said that he he'd always wanted to take the kids out in, in, individually, but you know, they were not at the age because you know either when they were too small, they needed me, or if uh, just generally with food, it was getting a little complicated when we were out. But again, now that they're independent, um, he decided to take Ran out with uh, another buddy of his with his son. And um, they did like a boys, you know, day, like an afternoon outing. And uh, the energy and like excitement that my, you know, my son felt when he came home. Um, I haven't seen him like that uh, in a long time, actually. And he was just saying that, you know, getting access to his dad, you know, without, you know, my daughter um, trying to fight for attention and just, you know, also not being limited by her because since she, as with her being younger, um, you know, the pace sometimes slows down or, you know, he's unable to get as many turns as he wants. And he was very satisfied with the uh, with the afternoon. And he was also very gracious when he came home that, you know, when she wanted, you know, my husband's attention, he it, he also, you know, kind of took a step back and gave her that space. And, you know, similarly, like I got to do like a girl's day with her and I just kind of did activities that she wanted to do. And she actually surprisingly, again, you know, I think we underestimate kids as well when they're younger that they don't really have a lot to talk about. But um, you know, she just turned four today and she was explaining certain things to me um, on our car rides, which she had never talked about before. And so, yeah, I definitely um, see some benefit in this. I, I initially thought they were too young to start this, but definitely on the first attempt, um, it was it was definitely successful. Yeah, that's actually a really great example uh, that you've given, because I feel like with children, like once that, you know, cup is filled up for them where they've had that, you know, pocket of time with their parent, mm -hmm. then I think even then their behavior is is more positive. It's more, there's less chances for misbehavior because they are feeling that connection, right? And that, that sense of belonging. Um, and another thing uh, to your point is about consistency, about, you know, like if you are planning these family times, make sure that you do them consistently. So maybe you pick a Friday every week and you do one hour with one child one Friday and then the next Friday you switch it up and then your husband could flip that around. So, you know, you're with Nia this Friday and he's with Ryan and then next Friday it's, you know, you with Ryan and, um, you know, Arib with, with Nia. And that's how I mean, my husband and I plan to do it as well. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's, it's like so much, you know, needed, especially now, because we're kind of like always indoors. And, and we just, like, our routines have just kind of become really, like, I think, robotic, right? Exactly. So it's a good way to change it up. Yeah. And I think also, um, to your point in the beginning that you were mentioning, um, I forgot to, to mention this when you had first said it, but I think the the one benefit I have found truly with with COVID and the lockdown and, you know, um, very grateful for health, uh, first and foremost, but it allowed us to be able to kind of step back because our, our weekend schedules um, were insane. We, there would be weekends where we'd have three different things we would be doing, three different places, three different friends or families. And we really lost track, you know, even the essence of our meetings, they were fun. Um, and, you know, we, again, grateful that we got to see, you know, this many people at, at, you know, when we did. But, you know, even if I think about really knowing the the deeper quality side of a relationship, you know, um, there just wasn't time, there wasn't time to get to know someone yeah. better or deeper. Um, the kids were just, you know, they'd finally adjust somewhere. And then we'd be like, okay, time to pack up time to go to the next event. Mm -hmm. And I think that the slowing down has definitely made a difference with even the kids really kind of kind of internally knowing what it is that they need and what it is that they want versus just, you know, going robotically on these um, on, on our past crazy schedules. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, and then obviously for the sake of time, I'm just going to move on to the next, to the next point. And that is about, you know, 
how like is this discipline effective in the long term? And, I, and we've been talking about this. I think it's it's a theme that shows up in the book a lot about how parenting in the short term, you know, punitive, you know, measures might work, but we have to think about you know parenting in the long term. So we can ask ourselves the question about you know is this in the best interest of my child in the long term? And if the answer is yes, then we know we're doing something right, right? So it's often I think easy to lose focus of that because long term strategies take a lot more time. And, you know, it takes a lot of patience for us to see the behavioral change in our children. Um, and then, you know, that's one of the main pressing themes in the book is, like I mentioned, parenting in the long term and asking ourselves, like, what will my child decide if I, you know, take this action? If I take this disciplinary action, what will my child decide? Or what will she learn about herself, about me as a parent and about what is working in our relationship? And I think this sort of thinking can be a little bit hard to do, particularly when we are frazzled, when we're short on time, when we have a lot of things to balance, a lot of things on our plate. But I think it's so important to have that introspection um, because, you know, if we go back to like thinking about permissive parenting, for, for example, if we indulge in every, you know, demand of our child, then we're basically saying that, you know, if you want something, you should have it now or material goods are like the most important thing in life. Um, or, you know, our child getting that short-term happiness doesn't teach them, you know, valuable life lessons about, you know, problem solving or handling disappointment or, you know, like I can, I can thrive and survive without my parents always rescuing me. So that is essentially looking at parenting in the long term. And the fourth, uh, like fourth principle is that, you know, does it teach them valuable social and life skills for good character? So the best thing we can do for our child is, you know, teach them the skills they need to be successful in life. And I think, you know, when we try to quantify success, is it like having a good job or is it having, I don't know, an amazing house? And in this case, we're looking at it from the perspective that they have healthy relationships with others. They're able to manage their emotions and they're able to, you know, model that for those around them. So it also takes you know, time and patience, um, something that I think can wear thin for us. But again, you know, the option of like having to give in in the present seems easier through punishment, but we're not perfect. I think us trying again and again to learn from our mistakes teaches our kids that, you know, it teaches them a lot about perseverance and that if you do something wrong, you can apologize. You can figure out ways not to do it again and you can learn from that mistake. And positive discipline is also not about our children paying for their mistakes, but it's rather exploring through, you know, natural or logical consequences. So, you know, if you stand in the rain, what happens? You get wet. And, you know, if, if we take another example, if, if your child is in like a really um, heightened state of like fight or flight, and we also may want to clash in that moment, it's better for us to, you know, calm down. And when we're in a calmer state of mind, we can ask our kids, you know, questions like, these are, these are called curiosity questions. Like, what do you think caused this situation to happen? And what ideas do you have to solve it? Um, and I think one of the most important things to remember is using our kindest voices. And the best way to achieve this is by practicing. So I going back to what you had mentioned earlier um, at the beginning of the podcast about, you know, unlearning. I think the best way to unlearn is by practicing the tools and, you know, using your kind voice, being firm, and, you know, the more we speak this way, uh, the more we are to, you know, keep modeling it and our children will respond in the same way back to us. 
And um, finally, like it can be really easy to look at misbehavior and think, you know, what is the problem? What kind of punishment can I put into place to stop this problem? When in reality, we should be asking the question, what is the problem and what is the solution? And finally, the last point is, you know, does this type of discipline, does it invite children to discover how capable they are and to use their power constructively? So children have an innate sense, you know, that they want to contribute. And, you know, there's research that says that children as young as two want to help out. And, you know, it's in this case, like, it's okay to allow our kids to struggle when they're trying to put on their clothes or their shoes and we see them struggling. And I know in my case, like my son, when he struggles, he tends to vocalize himself a lot. So he like grunts, he'll scream. And in that moment, like when I'm watching him, I'm like, I'm so close to just saying like, hey, can I help you zip up your jacket? Hey, can I help you put on your boot? But I think it's that perception that we have or what we think, you know, that is that they're struggling where in reality, our child is just using that opportunity to learn to do things themselves. So, you know, we need to sometimes take a step back and ask ourselves, like, do we need to jump in and rescue them at each turn or each opportunity? So those are the five criteria or five principles of positive discipline. Um, you know, that actually also before you get to the next point, um, yeah. it reminded me of uh, in my first year psychology course um, at, at UTM uh, with the professor, he was explaining that a lot of times, you know, parents tend to have a um, it's a survival instinct, right? You want your young to survive just so, like, like all animals. And so a lot of times parents tend to um, do for their children as if not realizing that their child is built to innately, you know, survive. And so um, he was saying that, you know, the, the purpose and, and the success of a, of a human being, so also obviously a child is, um, and the purpose of a parent is to create independence in your child to survive without you. And so, you know, our, our, especially as mothers, our, our nature and our um, intrinsic need to be able to help. And as you're mentioning with your son's example, I have the same thing with my son's the exact same. And so when he struggles to a, you know, on a selfish level to avoid hearing the whining and the crying B on that motherly level of wanting to end his struggle and suffering and help him out. Um, on both those levels, you know, the, the, my act is to initially help, but I'm trying my best to remind myself that, you know what, if I'm not around, he should be able to do it himself and, you know, have that, uh, because only when he tries to do it himself, will he be able to self-correct and improve. But if I'm always there, you know, the dependency on others to help will just, um, it, it'll be crippling over time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. Um, and I, it also kind of goes back to that, so you know how the book kind of breaks it apart into what is the basic need for a child or any human being? It's like that sense of belonging. And that second part is the significance or the capability part. So our children need to be able to feel that they are capable, that they are they are able to do things themselves and they need that independence. So mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, that's, that's a really good point that you brought up. And, you know, it also just uh, comes to mind that I remember, I don't remember which book it was at this point, but... I had actually read that, you know, when they look at statistical averages for various things, um, there was this one study that had found that uh, parent, uh, sorry, children who did not have a father in their life, most of them, or I shouldn't say most, maybe many of them, um, I don't remember the number at this point, uh, many of them went on to doing exceptional things with their life. 
And uh, if you look at a lot of the famous people who've made major changes in the world, a lot of them had unsteady father figures. And uh, that was surprising to me when I actually, you know, came across that because, you know, just you've been socially programmed to think that, you know, the father and mother are both roles that are, um, you know, without one, you know, there will be some sort of gap in, you know, child rearing. But in reality, um, they were explaining how a lot of times the um, handicap, for lack of a better word, tends to happen, you know, when you have two very caring individuals in a child's life, um, you know, wanting to the struggle and the there, there's a there's a threshold for struggle that I think is forgotten, um, that is healthy to push a person at a, to a place where a child who has the cushioning of both parents sometimes doesn't, you know, get. And it's very hard to artificially create that struggle when you have, you know, two people there to help cushion the child. But it was very um, eye-opening for me when they were talking about this uh, concept that a lot of people who've experienced some level of struggle that was within a healthy range, uh, it allowed to, like, it kind of propelled them um, to overcome certain barriers uh, that, you know, the average person doesn't. And so uh, it's just a little eye-opening, I think, for parents just to kind of remind themselves. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I think particularly speaking to how, like, there's this misnomer about, you know, you mentioned it, that people tend to think like, okay, if it's a child from like a single parent home that, you know, they're somehow lacking. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, there, there is that, there's that little bit of like where the parent might struggle more financially. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, you know, if the child has gone through that independence and, you know, they have struggled to achieve something, you can see that they're, they're doing amazing things in life, right? As, as they get into adulthood. So uh, now moving forward to the next part, um, I was actually wondering, uh, is there a uh, definition, I guess, that is provided by the authors of discipline that kind of spans culture? Because I think, you know, every every term has a cultural significance. And, um, you know, it's, it is a complicated task to be able to create a general definition. So um, did the authors get a chance to create a cross-cultural um, term or explanation for readers? So that's a really good question because so all they don't they don't really go into like the cross-cultural perspective be, because they are sort of you know catering to a North American audience. Um, I personally think that you know we can definitely see how different parenting styles are more dominant in certain cultures and societies versus others. So you might have societies where parents might be more authoritarian. Um, versus other societies where parents might be too permissive and they give in to every demand of their child. Um, but I think one thing that really needs to be made clear is that, you know, that isn't really discipline, right? Because we, I, I talked about how discipline, um, what, you know, uh, Dan Siegel had said about, about discipline, that it means to, to teach and not be, like be a, beha- uh, a consequence of, you know, behavioral actions. So it may be believed that a form of discipline is like threats and yelling or giving into our children in the short term, because, you know, that's an easier place to fall back into because, you know, we're used to those kind of habits. But what the authors say is that, you know, positive discipline is based on universal principles. So this is something that spans across, you know, borders and cultures and countries. Uh, and this, you know, these universal principles, they include connection, encouragement to, you know, increase belonging and significance. And like I have mentioned a few times already, this is like a primary goal of all people. 
And it's an, it's an inert need to belong to a social group and to succeed in our relationships and, you know, to feel a true sense of belonging. So although they didn't, you know, mention specifically cultural gaps, I think if we look at these principles, you like we can we can talk about them universally that you know treating your child with respect treating your child with kindness with you know firm boundaries that doesn't really you know have a language or doesn't really have a specific geography that's a really great point um yeah definitely that makes good sense um now also the other question i had was you know does do the others talk about you know, repetitive behavior. So is there a time where, you know, we're all human, regardless if we're adults or not, we have our also our limits. And so if, you know, we're trying and we're, we're following, you know, the steps that they highlight, um, but obviously, you know, children are children, they push, you know, your limit and your threshold is, 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 do they discuss, you know, kind of how to get yourself back to neutral when you see, you feel yourself going, you know, the wrong way? Yeah, so they so this idea about like, you know, um, children doing repeated behaviors and how to kind of get out of that. I think, you know, before we had kids ourselves, we may have had fantasies about how we would parent and how our children would be. And I think it's generally like a rude awakening when we realize that things are a lot harder because of, you know, when we take into consideration things like brain development that happens from like, you know, zero till they're teenagers, that rapid brain development. So I think I'm going to take a quick moment to just talk about brain development and understanding where our kids are coming from. And this, I think, will kind of help manage expectations around repeated behavior. Um, so I know as adults, we, we're, all, we're often expecting children to understand things that their brains are not yet capable of processing, which leads to like ineffective parenting strategies. Like, for example, lecturing does not work with toddlers. So they do not have an ability yet to understand cause and effect or consequences and the ethics behind action. So according to research, it shows that this is generally better understood by children when they turn 10 or even when they're a little bit older. So in this case, it's you know wiser to use less words and more actions if they're toddlers. So in my case, I can give the example of my daughter. Generally, after we're done eating our meals, it's always been the struggle or it's been like a struggle about washing hands. And it, in the past, I'd always be like, Hannah, please wash your hands because I'm busy like wrapping up the food, clearing the table. Please go wash your hands. She'll be standing there like kind of smiling. And you know, she's trying to push my buttons and she'll kind of like start touching things like the sofa and, and items. And you know, her hands have like, they're not clean. So I remember I'd be like, kind of start lecturing her like, you need to go wash your hands. Your hands are dirty. And it would just kind of like me, you know, talking and talking and her not doing anything. And then I realized, like I need to kind of, you know, first validate her because, you know, I know you don't feel like washing your hands and we have to walk to the bathroom now and wash our hands. So I would walk her to the bathroom, stand there with her, wash her hands. And now I've noticed that like she's gotten used to me helping her there. And that's I, I, I'm guiding her to the bathroom, but she's gotten to the point where she's using the soap herself, washing her hands well and then drying her hands and leaving. So I'm, I'm hoping with this kind of like repetition, consistent repetition, it kind of, you know, it becomes something that she just learns. And another ineffective strategy is like spanking. Um, so no matter what age the child is, this is a completely ineffective uh, strategy to use on children. There's a disconnect for the child. So when they get hit for something that they've done, they won't be able to understand you know, why that was. So for example, if a child is about to run into traffic, if your child is about to do that and you hit them, in this situation, they're going to think that the hitting is far more serious than actually running into the street because they don't even know if a car hitting them is, you know, what is that exactly? 
So if it doesn't teach them the connection between their behavior, we can we can take time to like train them and repeat behaviors um, to get them to understand. So if you're about to cross the street, hold your toddler's hand and ask them to look both ways and then cross the street. And I think we can apply this, apply this to so many situations. Like I mentioned with my daughter, her hand washing. I think two more things that are really important is the first is routines. And I, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but our children knowing that, you know, every day is going to be like yesterday. So morning routines with like breakfast, going to school or whether they're at home, uh, they have a rhythm and they're, them having predictability and routine, it helps reduce misbehaviors. And it teaches our children that, you know, even if their day is loosely structured, it teaches them organization and it te teaches them time management. And last but not least, we're going to talk about modeling, which is also a really big theme that runs through this book. Modeling is extremely important for our children. We have to throw out that phrase that, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And for our children to become adults who are capable, like who feel a sense of belonging, they need to learn from their parents. And again, we aren't asking ourselves to be perfect, but we need to remember that, you know, we can adopt the tools that can make our relationship with our children so much better and smoother. And I think these sort of tools help us in, you know, managing behavior that is repeated and shifting it towards like a more positive, uh, positive way. That that's it's really great points. Thank you so much for sharing. I think um, you know definitely want to you know re-listen to our this, this this piece because I think any any parent and every parent there's no such thing as a perfect parent and um, just reminders is all the best we can do to kind of get ourselves on track. And um, just before we move on to the final area of the section, um, I just want to say that I think as you're saying with modeling, um, one common uh, mistake I think parents make and uh, is when it comes to things like something like lying, lying, I think, is an issue that is uh, prevalent in children from a very young age. I think from the time that they kind of realize that there's two ways of telling something, they kind of start versions of lying. And that's, I think, probably one of the first things children get punished for. And I remember, um, you know, you hear it many places like, you know, oh, it's just a white lie. Oh, that's a lie. You know, like, and I remember hearing this one lecture where this the speaker was like, you know, lies don't have colors. A lie is a lie. And as a child, you know, we've all done it. Like it's, it's not something that, uh, uh, it, it, to be punished doesn't make sense because it's part of the growing up process. And I think if a parent is able to, as you say, model behavior that is consistent. Um, so as an example, I remember, um, you know, I've been in some homes where, uh, if someone, you know, places a phone call and, um, you know, someone picks up the phone and the parent says, Oh, sorry, you know, the, the people who the owners are not home and their child actually witnesses that, that to a child is a lie. It's it's not colored, it's not harmless, it's not harmful, it's just a lie. And so the same child, when they later lie about something else that's meaningful to the parent and get punished, the hypocrisy um, is right away stands out to a child. And so that is, you know, a conscious um, effort on a parent's part to realize that, you know, even something like, you know, making promises to your child and, uh, you know, you tell your child, okay, to get out of a situation, if you're able to come out of this place, um, you'll get an extra 20 minutes of, you know, iPad time. And, you know, your child agrees and obliges. And sometimes children are children and they, they will forget. Uh, and something that, you know, I realized after my husband spoke to me was the importance of actually following up on that promise. Because there would be times where, you know, I'd make that commitment and then, you know, my son would forget because he'd be in his own mode. He's a child. And, you know, my husband reminded me a couple of times. He's like, you know what, if you've made him this promise, 
remind him that, oh, by the way, you may have forgotten, but I had promised you this. And that reminder means a lot. And I've definitely seen the effect that that has had on my son uh, because the trust level, as well as his willingness to share whether or not it's positive or negative of something he's done has dramatically made a difference. And I think that that's just one of the biggest, you know, reminders for myself first that I can, you know, give to others is that, uh, you know, keeping up your word with your children um, and not falling into this whole justifying lie situation, even if, because again, you know, even as an adult, sometimes, you know, speaking the truth is hard, you know, it's never comfortable, if, especially if it's an uncomfortable, awkward situation. But I think if a child sees you, how you handle that situation, I think it's, it's a lot of, that's, that's more benefit than teaching them, um, you know, a moral lesson from a book or just verbally, Let, letting them see that in action, I think yeah. will uh, weigh a lot more. Yeah. So I think like, I know you haven't read this book, <laughs> but it sounds like, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head because there is a section at the end, which is called like troubleshooting. And there's a whole little, you know, paragraph on lying and what you talked about modeling. It's exactly as you said, like parents, um, you know, if they make a promise, for, like going through with it. And then this last point you mentioned about, you know, if a child sees their parent, you know, going through and sharing a moment or a, a time in their life where, you know, it was like they had to say a lie and, and admit to their parents that, uh, sorry, admit to their kids that, you know, this is something they had to go through. I think there's a teachable moment there that, you know, we make mistakes. And again, those are opportunities to learn. And I, I think that was like a really excellent point um, of yours about, you know, lying as a behavior and how to kind of, you know, the way we bring it up with our kids is, can like make or break the situation. Mm -hmm. So finally, um, does the author at all refer to how to mean th that you need to maintain positivity throughout the disciplinary process? Or um, are there moments where, you know, it's okay to steer more neutral to, I don't want to say negative, but you know, more towards that direction. Um, just because, you know, in the heat of the moment there, it's very difficult to, you know, always have your mind logical and, um, you know, thinking straight. So is, is there any reference to, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction, how to respond to that? Yeah. So I think your question is really important because this definitely warrants a discussion around the belief behind behavior. So I know it's not possible for us to always be, you know, stay positive in the moment because when our kids are maybe talking back to us or if they're, I don't know, whining or crying, it can, you know, be triggering and it can like shut off parts of our brain where we go into fight or flight. But if we understand where our child's behavior is coming from and why they're misbehaving, I think it can certainly help us in those moments be become a lot more grounded and maybe even look at it as an opportunity to teach. So, you know, it's really normal for kids to test the waters and to, misbehave to figure out their place in the world. And again, this goes back to how do kids find their sense of belonging and capability. And to understand misbehavior, we need to understand the mistaken beliefs behind a child's action, and then we can decode their behavior. So, you know, we might make, make the mistake of mislabeling, or mislabeling our child's behavior as lazy, stubborn, spoiled, you know, disobedient, bad, entitled, or the list goes on, right? But by using these negative labels, we miss the coded message behind the mistaken belief. So we call them mistaken goals, and the book refers to them as mistaken goals, because the real goal by our child is to achieve 
belonging, connection, and capability. And all behavior has a purpose. So we have to remember that children do not have the cognitive ability to express their needs in a more effective or positive way. So this helps us keep our emotions calm. And I would say maybe even a little bit positive when our children might be, you know, back talking at us, whining or refusing to cooperate. So the four mistaken beliefs, I'll just quickly go through them. The first one is undue attention. So your child believes that I will only feel belonging if my parent pays constant attention to me. So if a parent feels like annoyed or irritated or, you know, worried or guilty when children are behaving like this to get attention, then the parent reacts by, you know, do like saying constant reminders, coaxing their child or forcing them, doing things for the child that the child could do for themselves. So the child may stop their attention seeking behavior in that moment, but then they'll start again. So their mistaken belief is that, you know, I only get noticed when I act out. And the coded message here is notice me or involve me in like our everyday life. So what we can do to involve our children in useful tasks is to be firm and kind. So, you know, for example, let's take my, you know, children coming upstairs when I'm about to go into a meeting. I can be like, I love you kids and I would love to spend time with you. And I will do that later. And I will follow through with that action. I will not, you know, finish my meeting and just you know, stay on my computer for the next half an hour, I, I will follow through with my action. So my kids know that mom, uh, she does what she says. And also, again, having well-planned out routines and special one-on-one -on -one time, like I had mentioned earlier, and special time can be 10 minutes of undivided attention for two to six-year-olds and doing at least 30 minutes of special time with your children who are seven and older um, a week. And, you know, again, this can be like outdoor activities or just spending time indoors without distractions. This means like putting away all devices. And again, then you're modeling to your child that I'm here for you and it's just you and me and there's nothing else to um, come between us. And, and just here, I also just want to add that I think in, in the age of social media, um, I have, again, I have personally fallen prey to this. Sometimes, you know, the, the, the enjoying the process versus, you know, showing the process sometimes gets very clouded and I would find myself, um, you know, out and about. And again, you know, something would be so, you know, pretty or cute or, you know, or fun or something I just wanted to share so other people can, you know, try it out and benefit. And I'd find myself sometimes, you know, you, you intend for a picture and then that becomes a caption and that becomes a comment replying and this and that. And it's so easy to get lost in it all. Um, so kind of uh, what I've sort of told myself now is, you know, if I'm doing an experience, I will, you know, take a maximum of maybe two or three pictures. And then when I'm, I finish the actual, you know, um, experience, I will then later when I'm, you know, have free time when the kids are asleep, then, you know, I'll choose to post about it because I think it's, uh, kids feel it. And, you know, I also sometimes think about, you know, the children of, you know, social media celebrities, how that their day to day has become, you know, online and, even moments that are meant to be personal and very intimate, um, you know, they're now kind of, you know, clouded and mixed in with a camera. And so children, I, I sometimes wonder how they feel because as a child, I don't ever remember feeling self-conscious or, you know, um, you know, camera ready. And so for these children, uh, I don't, you know, just sometimes I think it's important to try to, you know, reflect on the consequences of some of these actions. Because as parents, we see it as, you know, some for those of you know out there who choose to um, have their job on social media or whatnot, just to think of also the consequences it may have on children. Because, 
you don't want, you know, your personal choices as an adult to affect the quality of, you know, childhood that your child is experiencing. That's an amazing point as well. And I wish I could go more into the technology piece. There's quite a bit mentioned. There's a whole chapter actually devoted to technology, the technology addiction and, and you know, modeling behaviors around tech use and, and all that. Um, and I wish we did have more time. But, um, you know, if our listeners, if you get a, you know, get your hands on this book, definitely check out that chapter. And so I'm going to move on through the list. And the second, you know, um, mistaken belief is misguided power. So our child thinks I, I will only belong if I boss you around or I don't let you boss me around. So we as a parent might feel angry, we'll feel challenged or we'll feel really threatened in the situation. So we fight back thinking, you know, we can't let our child get away with it. I'm the parent or, you know, they need to pay for what they've done or they have to give into all of my demands. And, you know, this causes our child's behavior to intensify or the child may defeatedly listen to us in the moment. So in the short term, but the behavior will continue in the future. So again, long term. And the mistaken belief here for the child is that the child believes they only belong if they if they boss us around or if they are not bossed around by us. And their coded me messages, you know, let me help you and give me choices. This is what they're asking of their parents. And I think what we can do here as parents is help by validating our child's emotions and acknowledge that we cannot force them to do something they don't want to, but you can always redirect or you can give them options to problem solve. And another really important point is that, you know, going back to the, the, the issue of like positivity, if we are really triggered by the situation where, you know, we're butting heads with our kids like we're screaming, they're screaming, it's like a fight fest. <laughs> I think it's best to withdraw in that moment and return to the situation when you're calmer because it doesn't help when you're in fight or flight mode. And it's best to take a step back, go to another room if you have to, and like take a deep breath and, and find things that can help you help your heartbeat actually slow down because you will realize when you're in the situations, your heartbeat is like racing and you have physical signs, right? That you're in fight or flight mode. Um, and then the final thing is that, you know, you can use these um, issues that crop up and, and talk about them in family meetings and use that time to discuss solutions further. Uh, number three is revenge. So another mistaken belief behind behavior could be revenge. So our child believes that, you know, I don't belong and that hurts, but at least I can hurt back. So we might be really hurt by what our child says to us or disgusted by our child's behavior. For example, if they call us ugly names or they talk back to us, um, our response to our child's behavior might be retaliation, getting even, or even taking their behavior really personally. Like, how could my child say, th say that to me? You know, I gave birth to my child. Like, how could that, you know, how could they say something so hurtful? And what's going to happen in turn, our child will re retaliate back They'll, they might end up hurting others. So if there's a sibling in, in the equation, they might end up hurting their sibling. They'll say hurtful things to us. They might even damage the property around. So they might start breaking things in the house. And the mistaken belief here is that they feel they do, they do not belong. So they will hurt others just as they feel hurt. And the coded message behind this behavior is that I am hurt and validate my feelings. So what can we do? Well, the first thing obviously is validate our child's feelings. And, you know, I know how you feel. I know you're angry or upset or whatever emotions you're going through. Secondly, don't take their behavior personally. I know this is really difficult, especially 
when your child might say something to you that's very hurtful. I've personally been through that. And in that moment, you kind of want to be like, how dare you talk to me like that? I'm your parent. But you have to remember that this is a child after all. And again, their brain development takes a big like consideration into the way they are behaving with us as well. And then finally, listen to them and their emotions. And this includes crying. So if crying is something that, you know, it may like trigger you, it may bother you. I think over time, it's just it's something that you have to work through and realize that crying is also a way for them to get out their emotions. It may not just be them talking. Crying is, you know, another way for communication. And doing these things like truly and reflectively. And then finally, uh, the last is assumed inadequacy. So our child basically believes that, you know, I don't belong and there's no hope, so I give up. And in this case, as a parent, we feel despair. We feel hopelessness, helpless, or we feel inadequate as parents that we failed our child. And our response to our child's behavior where, you know, they give up easily is that we give up and we give in to their demands or we do things for them or we overhelp them or we show a lack of faith in their capabilities. And what's this what this is going to do is it's going to cause our child to retreat even further and become passive, not want to do things for themselves and avoid trying. And then the mistaken belief behind this behavior is that, you know, I don't believe I belong. So I'll convince others not to expect anything of me. And then the coded message. So what are we, what is this behavior actually saying? Is my child is saying, don't give up on me, mom, don't give up on me, dad, and show me a small step. So what can we do for our child? We can help break down big tasks into smaller steps. So um, for example, my daughter, sometimes she has a hard time wearing her socks. Getting her to learn how to do this was put a sock on for her and then teach her the trick on how to get the other sock on. So like maybe you can scrunch it up a little bit, make it into like a little tube. And so just doing that repetitive process, it helped her learn how to put her socks on. And now she's quite independent in being able to put her socks on, getting her shoes on and getting out the door. Um, and that's, I think that also speaks to setting up your child for success. So creating opportunities for success. So if there is a place where your child can do something themselves, let them do it. And also don't criticize them or their work. So I know like sometimes kids really love help, uh, helping in folding clothes. And my son like, likes to do that as well. But obviously when they fold clothes, they're just going to be like, you know, one sleeve is still sticking out and they're maybe a little bit messy. Instead of criticizing your child, you can, you know, you can basically show faith in your child's ability that, you know, they can do it. And you can just put away the clothes like that as well. So the child will know that, you know, this is something that I'm able to do myself. And finally, again, you know, retracing back to family meetings and, you know, through family meetings, talking about building up your child's interest and, you know, reiterating to them that, you know, don't give up. And so for the sake of time, I'm not gonna go into examples of how to resolve misbehaviors that might stem from, you know, these mistaken beliefs, uh, but I'm going to hopefully be able to put up a post on Instagram with more details and examples. And I would like to sort of end this off with answering a question from one of our listeners. And they asked us on Instagram about how to deal with tantrums. So the first thing is that tantrums are a form of communication. So a big mistake is thinking that giving into the tantrum is the best way to let our child know that they are loved. Our child is essentially asking us for something. And when they do not get it, they are looking, uh, you know, they're essentially going to dissolve into a tantrum. So first we need to check if all their basic needs are met. So what I like to do is I go through a mental checklist. So see, okay, is my child hungry? Are they tired or are they overwhelmed in their environment? 
Uh, and then the next step is just to remember connection before correction. And it's this is such an easy mantra to just sort of repeat in your head in the moment. So if it's a younger child, you know, get down to their level, eye contact, hand on shoulder, tactile touch, you know, this is going to help your child feel connected with you in that moment. And it may even calm down their nervous system within that moment. And if a child doesn't want to be touched, because this happens, sometimes your child is like, don't touch me, I don't want to be touched, you can still kneel down to their level and show them that you are there through eye contact. And then validating their feelings by connecting. So I know you're really upset right now, and that's okay. You really wish you could have have you you really wish you could have had what you wanted, and that's it. That's all you need to say. Um, and you can also act without words. So in this case, for example, when we talked about you know our child maybe throwing a tantrum at a supermarket, or if you're at like a party, your child is overwhelmed, and there can be plenty of situations where you're outdoors. It's okay to pick up your child and carry them to a quieter place or to their car where they can blow off their steam and let out their emotions. Um, and just to add to that last point, I, with my daughter, my son never had tantrums, especially public tantrums. Like, you know, he would cry as a baby when he would be hungry, but that's about it. And so for my daughter, though, she was the quintessential tantrum thrower. Um, you know, at the grocery store, if there were balloons, especially when she was around two, uh, if there were balloons that she wanted and I said no, she would fall to the ground and actually physically roll. Like it was with the screaming and the crying. And yeah. so because, you know, as a second time parent, you're a bit more immune to embarrassment. And so one thing I realized was she wouldn't actually let me pick her up. Um, she would stiffen up like a board and just refuse to allow me to pick her up. So with the back issue that I have, fighting her off was not an option either. And so uh, what I did realize was, you know, most people in that grocery store either have a child or know a child. And so all it is, is rather than further the issue by yelling at her even more for doing it, um, I would just literally look up at those who are around me, smile, and, you know, at, at most I'd be like, you know, sorry about the, the noise. And I found that most, if not all, I can't actually remember a single situation where I was reprimanded or, or spoken to rudely. In almost every situation I can think of, everyone was extremely kind about it. They'd either laugh it off or smile or give this reassuring, you know, look. And I think it goes a lot. It goes very far to kind of just get that, um, just reach out to the people around you. Cause at the end of the day, you're concerned for other people's, you know, comfort. And, um, if your child needs to get it out on the spot, if they're just refusing to allow you to move them, then, you know, so yeah. be it. And just, again, um, you know, refer to the people around you just for a bit of that, you know, understanding. Yeah, no, that's a great point, actually. And um, yeah, you're so you may not always be able to physically remove your child. So it's, again, it's it's like the situation you're in and assessing it. And, and I think always remembering the basic principles of firmness, kindness, connection. And I think that's the way to sort of, you know, like, think about how we approach our children, whether they are having a moment and they are misbehaving or even in times of calm and peace, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanna close off by saying that, you know, it's never too late to repair the relationship you have with your child. So if you find that your parenting tools were or are oscillating between punishment and reward, so authoritarian, or if you're too permissive, then adopting these positive discipline principles in your parenting is going to help you definitely create a healthier household. And it won't just repair what you have with your child, but it's meant to help, you know, on an individual level, become the person we want our children to see as role models. 
And, you know, parenting is, is tough. It's hard. We can't attain perfection. And in those times that we do slip up, where we do maybe end up yelling or getting angry or, you know, whatever the situation is, we can use that as an opportunity to learn and teach. It's, it's okay to make mistakes and we can apologize and we can move on and try harder the next time. And again, it, this just goes back to making sure that, you know, does our child feel safe with us? Do they feel loved? And, and by that, I mean, do they have a sense of belonging in the family unit? And also, do they have a sense of significance or that capability? So just remembering these points and these principles and, and taking that to heart, internalizing it and, and realizing that, you know, there will be moments that are going to be really tough, but now you have the toolkit to help address those issues. Um, and I also just wanted to mention that uh, I think something that helps calm me down and kind of soften me in, in heated moments with the kids is that your child will own in a very odd way, a child will only act at their worst in a safe environment. And they, when, they, when you know that they are willing to show themselves at their worst to you, that's only because they trust you and they know that they will not be harmed or threatened um, their survival will not be threatened by doing so. And so as you know, the adult and the parent, just reminding yourself of that, that you are their safe space. And um, your role again is just to teach them how to manage that. And so that energy can be shifted in a constructive way versus uh, the way that they're you know, innately uh, showing. So thank you so much, Fatma. This has been such a very, very uh, informative podcast. Um, I definitely am looking forward to reading the book myself. Um, and I do hope that for the parents out there that, um, you know, you take some time and listen to it, especially parents with young children, um, zero to three. Uh, this is definitely something you can use to kind of write your parenting style, per se. And for those with older children, um, again, as Fatma said, it's never too late. I, there's a lot of points I myself need to review for my own family. And I do hope that uh, for those listening, that uh, you've definitely, you know, gotten a lot of benefit. And thank you for the great questions, Nisha. And also thank you to our listeners for sending in questions as well. And uh, if you get a chance, definitely pick up this book. And hopefully this will be that, you know, step you need towards um, having a healthier relationship with your children, having a healthier household. Uh, thank you again, everyone for listening. Um, please do share our podcast. Uh, if there's anything that you do like from our podcast, um, definitely tag us in it. If you have further questions on any of our podcasts, uh, we both operate our Instagram page. So please feel free to send us a direct message. Uh, we'd be happy to respond. Um, if there's something else you want us to look into, we're happy with that as well. Uh, and we hope to see you guys next week. Take care. Bye.